The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. The title of the talk apparently was Consciousness, Life and Karma. Okay, whatever that means, but anyway, here we go. So it's sometimes when we think of the law of karma, I don't know why they call it a law of karma. It's like the natural phenomena of karma. Is it just the fact that uh, where we come from makes a lot of difference? Uh, one of the parts of the Eightfold Path, the second factor of the Eightfold Path, is one of my favorite factors of the Eightfold Path, is Samasankapa. And the reason I say it's one of my favorite parts of the Eightfold Path is that as a young man, I knew kindness, compassion, caring was important. But I really couldn't find it in the Eightfold Path. Where is kindness in the Eightfold Path? And then you look through it and again and again and again. It's only when I learned Pali that you can understand. It was right there in the second factor of the Eightfold Path, Samasankapa. And of course, you know, sometimes people argue with me, and it's great we have discussions as monks and between lay people as well. Please don't just think, Ajahn Brahm said this, it must be right. That is wrong ideas. Sometimes I put forward some interesting ideas just to move uh, the understanding of Buddhism deeper and further. But certainly, I never liked the idea of Samasankapa being called right thought. I thought, oh my goodness, thinking has just ruined so much of my life. <laughs> and by that I mean that doing something like uh, building stage two of the retreat center project, if you think about it, it's, it's crazy. It's too much hard work, raising all the funds, doing all the building work, and you really put your heart into it, and then still people think, no, it shouldn't have been done like that. It should have been done a different way. And all the time, that thought can create so much problems for you. So instead of thinking about it, we just do it. And of course, you know that story. It's one of my favorite stories. The training which I had as a monk was when I had, when I was actually, I say, I was going to say when I was young as a monk, I used to work really, really hard. And uh, I thought that once you get old, you don't have to work so hard. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> You still have to work hard, but in different ways. But anyway, that particular time, Ajahn Chah had just finished his main hall, if you remember that story, and there's a huge pile of earth left over. And instead of actually getting an earth mover, well, actually, he did have earth movers. All his monks, like me, we were earth movers. <laughs> They're much cheaper than hiring somebody. So, so. Three days of hard work, shoveling earth into wheelbarrows, pushing the wheelbarrows and put it into the right space. And those were days where I was really hungry. I Actually, I've, I've got them here now. I've, I've got these pictures of me when I first came to Australia. I was really thin. I mean, honestly thin. <laughs> and this was you know, when I came and started eating properly here in Australia. Over there in Thailand, oh, you're hardly eating much at all, and it's very low um, nutrition. And so you had to work all day 
just from early in the morning to late at night, you couldn't see any more pushing wheelbarrows of earth. But it was for your teacher. And I thought, for the teacher, no, for Buddha, no, for Ajahn Chah, I'll do anything. I work really hard. But every day was so sweaty and dirty. And after three, I didn't have time to have a shower, honestly. Not showers, actually. You just went to the well and put water over yourself. It was just too dark. And so I must have really been stinky, honestly stinky. And my rows were really dirty, and I was tired. And three days we'd finished it. And then after those three days, Ajahn Chah went to another monastery, just like, you know, monks, we do go to each other's monastery whenever we can. So then Ajahn Liam took over. And he said, I think you put it in the wrong place. <laughs> it's a much better place, just over there. <laughs> I wasn't laughing at all. <laughs> Another three days of hard work pushing the wheelbarrows in the mosquito-laden jungles of Thailand is really hot and sweaty and dirty. But Ajahn Liam had a point, so we moved all that earth. And then when it was finished, Tomorrow, six days continuous hard work. I can have a, a meditate, shower, wash, have a rest. And that was the night Ajahn Chah came back. You know what he said? You put it in the wrong place. I told you to put it over here. You put it over there. Move it. <laughs> six days of hard work and another three days. The worst thing was these senior monks. They never did the work. They just told other people what to do. <laughs> so we do here. <laughs> and I was really upset. I was really angry. I was angry at that time, I must admit. I never became a monk to be a laborer. You can't do this to me. I'm going to start a monk's union. I'm going to strike or something. Yeah. Protest. But that was when... Uh, I've got always great respect for this monk who told me this. I just can't remember who he was. It was a Thai monk. And he came up to me and said to me, pushing the wheelbarrow is the easy part. Is the thinking about it is the hard part. No, so true. Whatever you do in life, whatever role you have to take, whatever job you have, even impossible jobs, doing it is actually quite easy. Thinking about it is the hard part. Even you go on a meditation retreat, oh, crikey. All this meditation, all this sitting, how can I do that? It's easy. Doing it and thinking about it, that's a tough one. So that's one of the reasons why when you say samasankapa means right thought, I think, oh, come off it. It's much deeper than that. It's, again, sometimes people say right intention. But if you look more carefully at how the Buddha described it, I think it's better to call it right motivation, where you're coming from. And there you see these beautiful three words of nekama sankapa, awayapada sankapa, and ahingsaka, ahingsa sankapa, or wihingsa sankapa. And each one of those, as soon as you understood their meaning, oh, thank goodness, this is where the compassion and kindness comes in. Nekama means renunciation. You've given up so much, each one of you who've been monks. Once you are monks, 
how much you've given up to actually to be working, you know, to be organizing uh, either this talk today or organizing the building of that retreat center we're doing here. You know that uh, <laughs> this is again one of my favorite stories. I built the retreat center over in Perth, the Jana Grove Retreat Center. There's me, me organizing it and cajoling people and saying, this is how we should do it. Don't do it this way, do it that way. But then in the end, the, the builder we had there, a good builder, but you know, things always go wrong. And we were arranging the big opening ceremony. And the night before, I think you were there at the time, weren't you, Ajahn Mudita? No, no. You went, I came afterwards, okay. Yeah. At that particular time, that when we opened, we we're going to open the following morning. And we had uh, lots of VIPs coming, including that the, the Premier of Western Australia, Jeff Gallup, was coming. He was actually our main sponsor, and also other dignitaries. And the night before, the evening before, it wasn't finished. The main hall, we had a bamboo. A uh, wooden bamboo floor is only half finished. And the builders were trying their best to try and get somebody to do some, some work to finish it off. It was Easter time. They were all just uh, starting their holidays. So what happened? We had a, a hall which is only half finished. Who can we call on to help? Da, 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 the Sangha! <laughs> <laughs> the monks! And that was actually, to me, that was just so inspiring to see some of those monks. I think they start about 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., just a day before the big opening ceremony. And they worked all night to about 4 a.m. in the morning. They finished it. And they had maybe one or two hours of rest. And then in the morning, they had a big opening ceremony. They made a wonderful job. And I tell everybody ever sits in there, where you're sitting on, that's to the, uh, or I might say where I'm sitting is always onto the right side, where other people are sitting on the left side of the main hall. And then where you're sitting there, there was uh, the Sangha stayed up all night to actually to finish that off for you. And that just touches my heart. That this is actually how we work. Doing it is easy. If you think about it, it's impossible, but it happens. And that is so inspiring. And that's where, you know, the right motivation. You're in out. Yeah, you can get a night's sleep later on. You know, you can actually get some rest later on. You can have a wash later on. But now it's something which is really important to do. We're going to do it. We're going to finish it. And it's inspiring when those things happen. So little by little, the renunciation is not just, but it's actually the word which many times people use when you renounce the world and become a monk or a nun. That's a very beautiful idea. You're giving up so much, so much of your freedom, so much of your choice, what you want to do, you're giving up for other people. But it's more than that. It's just renouncing, renouncing even your, your health. It's weird, isn't it? When I renounce any concerns about my health, I get healthier. <laughs> Strange, weird. But in other words, you don't worry so much. In the times of COVID, please excuse me, but I always feel that there's too much worry, too much fear. 
And I say that because there was a story from Edgar Allan Poe, which I read as a, a student, and it was called The Mask of the Red Death. Plague time in Europe, very similar. And they had this idea that all these plagues were caused by like demons, like bad spirits. And they, in this Mask of the Red Death, the ending was where all these spirits would meet together in a forest somewhere in Europe. And their spirits would uh, just confer with one another. How many people did you kill in London? <laughs> and the London spirit said, oh, I killed a thousand people. How many did you kill over in Paris? Oh, I killed 2,000 people. How many did you kill in, in Madrid? And they went on like this, and one of the spirits, how many did you kill in Amsterdam? So I only killed 200, and fear killed 2,000. <laughs> and that is the meaning of that. When I read that, wow, that is so important to understand, just how the mind interferes, even with your health. Any doctors here? I think, no? They're too busy looking after people. But again, I just recall as a student, I was a Buddhist. I was also joined the Astronomy Society, which was amazing. And I also joined the other society which I joined was the Psychic Research Society in London. And that's where I met one of my lifelong best friends, uh, Bernard Carr. I think you may remember him. He was a, one of the very close inner four or five uh, helpers of Professor Stephen Hawkins, very smart fellow. He was also a Buddhist. He was also a, uh, the president of the uh, London Psychic Research Society. We used to go hunting ghosts together. Honestly, it's no joke. We were interested in stuff which had no explanation which was real we wanted to find out why these things were happening so now this is where we actually went really deeply into the nature of things and i remember one of the experiments which we did with under hypnosis you now it's the old story of a four inch nail on the end of a stick hypnotized this poor student to think that that nail was red hot you can hypnotize people to believe anything and then they touched the, the nail on his skin. Ah! He jumped and screamed in pain. That I could understand. What I couldn't understand was why a blister came up. That nail was at room temperature. But it actually affected the skin. It caused a burn. And there was no physical cause, it was just the mind. It believed in that. And from that, that's one of the reasons why your mind is very powerful. Your intentions, or rather your motivations, have a huge effect, physical effect, on yourself and the world. Which is one of the reasons why that right motivation is more powerful than people think. When you're letting go, you're not thinking of yourself or what you need, what your family and family need, or what is good for others, and you're included, of course, in that. That's a great deal of power. Each one of you, you know, who've worked, I'm talking about the monks and the 
the lay people you to over there, how much food you've given us over these years, sacrificing what you wanted, or the committee over here, I've seen you for such a long time. But just how much have you given the sacrifice? It's huge. No, it's not. It's an investment <laughs> with secure returns, which is amazing for, for lifetimes. You know, sometimes uh, I look at you know, someone, your monk, but I've just been here. Yeah, I just was, uh, when I came here yesterday, I had to find out where we were sitting. And, and I was just, uh, how long have I been a monk? Over 47 years now. It's a long time as a monk. I said, wow, all that good services I've given. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Now, if that has uh, given you a huge boost of anti-inflammatory immunosuppressant, whatever it's called, that doesn't make you happy. And you think of all the amazing good karma you've done. You, you know, reflect upon it, focus on it. That's huge. And of course, you all know that when people were sick in the time of the Buddha, they'd chant the Bajanga Sutta. And these were actually to people who already were enlightened. And they said what you know, the enlightenment factors were to them. And the sickness disappeared. How does that work? You know, just you understand just what you've been doing, how powerful it is. How, you know, the enlightened beings have ended samsara once and for all. Wow, that's huge. And if you can actually reflect upon that, that gives us a huge boost all over especially you know, the physical health. That's why people would actually get up out of bed and they were not, say, cured, but the disease had been overcome by inspiration. That's one of the great ways of doing it. So that's just renunciation. But then you've got the Awayapada. And if you look at just the, the Pali, if you look at even the commentaries, they all agree that what that means is metta. It's just the way of the party language. So, you know, that's a synonym for it. And when you see that's right there in the second factor of the second, uh, second part of the second factor of the Eightfold Path. When I saw that, <laughs> yes. And you knew it had to be there somewhere. You can't have like a cold, heartless, concrete, hard Eightfold Path. There has to be some softness in there somewhere. And that's where it was really strong, the loving kindness. And also the, the uh, Ahimsaka, and of course that's easy to understand because that was Gandhi <clears throat> made that word famous, is like gentleness, non-harm. And those two fact, those three factors, the Eightfold Path, those three factors, the second part of the Eightfold Path, they were just inspirational when I saw that. And so that's what you see. Is coming from your consciousness. That's what motivates you, where it's coming from. And of course, that's caused by your right view. Then from the first factor of the Eightfold Path. From that, that creates the correct motivation. And my goodness, it's inspiring. And it's so inspiring that when you want to renounce, it's not about me, it's always about us. When you're so inspired from loving kindness, may all beings be happy and well. Or sometimes I say, opening the door of your heart to all beings, no matter who they are, and to all your faults, 
I do all the things wrong with the building project. You know, I just was having a look, because I know building, I was having a look at the uh, the hut I'm staying in. No, it's, you call it Ajahn Brahm's hut. That's no, it's only a name, it's not my hut. Mm-hmm. But to actually have a look at it and see all the faults in it. <laughs> I love seeing faults because it makes it real, human. I've done so, I'm saying this story again I, about the trees in the forest. I was also having a look at the trees in your forest over here. There's not one which is perfect. All bent and crooked and twisted and damaged. Every one of them. You have a look. That's what makes them beautiful. That's what makes it real. So this wonderful loving kindness doesn't expect beauty. Doesn't expect perfection in the normal sense of the word. But embraces and accepts things. As sometimes as they are. And sees their faults as part of nature. See the faults when and we can't do exactly what we need to do or want to do, but we do it anyway, because that's the best we can do. And that's one of the wonderful things why, and whatever you do in this world, you'll never be perfect. You can always make it closer to perfection, but don't try and make it absolutely perfect. It's impossible. You just get, get a big headache. Of course, um, I say that to everybody, but not to Ajahn Mudita, who's going to be talking to the builders later this week. <laughs> Don't tell them that's this story, because they have to be. <laughs> so in other words, this is actually where we have the beautiful loving kindness. And with that loving kindness and the gentleness, it's another weird thing that all the people which I've been working with, you know, worldly people, you know, the builders, the people you see in in government, these people you see just over, you know, when you check in at the airport, what are those people if you're kind to them? It's amazing just the little benefits which you get from kindness. You don't look for those benefits. When you make good karma, it's amazing just what you get back in return. Simple things. Just even some of the builders which we uh, are used to maybe hang out with that's not really the right word but just some of the builders who would uh, you know build the things over in monasteries and places like that when you're kind to them when you've got a sort of good motivation they're always much kinder to you they always try and do their very best they always do a little bit extra for you they come and see you Sometimes people say, no, Ajahn you're too soft, you should be hard. So no, I can't be hard. It's one of the reasons why people tell me I should eat more salt. You know why they say I should eat salt? Because apparently salt hardens your arteries, which means it also hardens your heart. <laughs> which means you know, you're a bit more tough. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> Nah. So when you're soft and kind, you get many, many more monks and nuns and lay people and monasteries and retreat centers and city centers. There's something there 
when you're kind to somebody else, they want to do more for you. It's like somehow they realize the type of kindness, the type of um, non-harm and openness of you know, a monk, a nun, a lay person who follows that second factor of the Eightfold Path is so powerful and inspiring. You just want to do more. And also you understand it's not just for money we do these things. It's just how many people are... How long has John Agro been around now? It's been about 12 years. Yeah. Sorry? 12 years now. 12 years. A dozen years now. The amount of good energy which that place has generated over such a long time. Okay, here's one story. <laughs> just on last... Uh, January, we were doing retreats over there. Uh, was it December? Yeah. yeah no, it was it the month before the November, December retreats, which we have there. And so that command came up. I won't say who it is. And he said, I just uh, came here just to thank you. And I always like it when they say that because why? And he said, because. The year before, earlier before, on the January 2021 retreat, which we did there, we still held it, he said you know, he had a brain tumor. And um, the doctor said, you have to have an operation. And I don't know medicine, but he said you have to be on steroids for the rest of your life. That wasn't a very attractive option for him, even the operation. Didn't really know whether it's going to be successful or whether he would survive. But this gentleman, I didn't tell him what to do. He just learned his meditation. And then he came to see me last December, only a couple of months ago. And he said, thank you, Ajahn Brahm. I didn't take the operation. I didn't have the operation. I just meditated instead. And the tumor's gone. I don't have to take the steroids. I don't have to have the operation. Thank you. Now, I say those things, not to sort of praise the part of meditation, just to give feedback. This is what happens. And so many people have those incredible experiences. And of course, this is what you're doing here for Victoria, giving people the option. Not all people will get that result, but so many people. That kindness and that gentleness and that renunciation, that just gives huge benefits for your karmic outcomes. You're really purifying your consciousness. You're not afraid. You're not ill will. And also, one of the things, you're being gentle with your body. Your body, sometimes when I train it, it's hard. And sometimes I can feel I'm just pushing my body too much. And of course, that has bad outcomes. When you're kind and gentle with your body. I was just, I think, telling a, I think it was uh, venerable. Well, Mudita, it could have been Nisona. Um, but the, I think it was actually Nisona. The last time I was in hospital as a patient was 30 years ago. And I remember that time because I was under a gynecologist. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there was this wonderful Sri Lankan doctor, Dr. Ariman Mendes. And he's a mother of Rakita and 
uh, chippy members. They're all great supporters of our monasteries. But anyway, because <laughs> I was, I don't know what was wrong with me. Just with no energy, really tired, and uh, excessively tired. And so he just said, oh, I'll just come and do some tests on you in the hospital. He just happened to be a gynecologist, but he could admit me to the hospital for six days or seven days. And that was the last time I was that sick, needed to go to hospital. And it's amazing what just the meditation can do for you. But it's not just a meditation, you're just gentle with your body. So gentle with the body that there are these occasions, times. I don't mind admitting this. Sometimes you're just uh, in the monastery, you're working or teaching or doing something. But then when I have a bit of time, I ask my body and my mind, what do you need right now? Just like, you know, you may have a child and then they're at home. And you ask them, what do you want to do this afternoon? What do you need? What do you want to eat? What do you want to drink? You love the child so much. And you ask them. And they give you answers. And to me, when I asked my body what it needed, somebody said, I need some exercise. So I went for a walk. Somebody said, I need some, something to drink. Actually, that's what it says now. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, I'm not making it up. When you're sensitive to your body, it's amazing just how your body responds. Thank you. And there's a few times, I've said this to monks as well, sometimes that you're tired. And now a few times my body has told me, you need to go and rest. And I'm sensitive enough now, this is not indulgence, because if it's indulgence, I go into my room and lay down. If it's indulgence, I just can't go to sleep. But a few times when I've felt like this, I've gone to the room, any place I can, lay down, you're out straight away. And half an hour, 45 minutes later, you wake up, wow, you feel really good really energize and to me i think there's something my body knows better than me what it needs and sometimes giving that rest i'm sure that many times some sort of uh, disease sickness or whatever has been zapped before it has a chance to take over my body my body's got its own defenses it just needs a bit of confidence from my mind so that it can be allowed to heal itself that's what I've found anyway over the years. That's one of the reasons why, that if you've got that gentleness to your body, not just sit up straight, stop lounging around. <laughs> Sometimes my body needs to lounge around. Sometimes your body needs to go up straight. Oh, that feels better. You find out what it needs. Be gentle with your body. Don't be strict. Don't try and train it. If you want training, go and join the army. <laughs> if you want to be healthy emotionally and physically come on these retreats so what you're doing is a marvellous thing here that's why I'm very happy to come and support it now I did ask how long I should be talking for because hopefully an opportunity to ask for questions so I'm now going to stop and put the, uh, the floor open to questions so, who's got a question? The online ones? Yes. Okay. 
it is time that my man asked him if I can keep talking for hours. I'm just a box, look at this. <laughs> Thank you, Arjun. Um, if there are no questions in the floor, there are currently six questions online, if that's all right. Did you say sick questions? Oh, sick. Six questions. <laughs> not sick. Okay, please. Um, okay. So, first one. Even though I am kind to my mind during my meditation, the thoughts of the person, the guilt and shame of my failed relationship strains me daily. How should I calm my mind after a breakup? Guilt has no part in Buddhism. Because sometimes, why did you do what you wanted to do, or what you did? And sometimes you think, it's not guilt, it's just forgiveness and understanding. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes many times. And next thing, if you failed relationships, oh, I do remember as a young man, relationships were very, very dangerous. And I remember sometimes, I think I've told this in other talks, that once many years ago, as a young 18, 19-year-old, I fell in love. I fell in love with this beautiful young lady. And we were together about six months. I thought, wow. And then you know what happened? She dumped me for another guy. <laughs> I've got so much gratitude. For <laughs> Thank you so much for dumping me. Otherwise, I could never become a monk. <laughs> so sometimes we can always blame ourselves. But no, this is life. So no, if you've got a few failed relationships, well done. <laughs> You're free. <laughs> and don't feel guilty about it because we're learning. Every time I say something wrong or do something wrong, instead, whenever I was a young monk and did something wrong, Ajahn Chah would laugh. He never hit me or feel, feel um, I didn't feel guilty. Instead, all I remember is actually learning. Okay, this is one of the, just recently, when we had the uh, full moon in February, it was on the 16th of February. And remember that was not just the time I gave a talk in Ajahn Chah's monastery, I was only four years in Thai, but I was also that the 10th death anniversary of my mum. She died on 16th of February, 2012. And that brought all these memories of my mother and all the stupid things which I did, which, you know, it's weird, I don't feel guilty about them, but I feel I'm just learning a stupid boy. And one of the most, <laughs> the worst things I did <laughs> for my mum was, I must have been about six or seven years of age, maybe eight, I'm not quite sure exactly the age, but I... <laughs> had this great idea on her birthday to actually give her a special present, a really so special present. And it did happen that um, there was a, a food craze in London at the time. Pie and eels, no, eels and mash, jellied eels and mashed potatoes. So there was a shop close by to where 
I lived, which sold either cooked eels or you could buy them fresh. So I went in there, I saved up pocket money, and I asked for a live eel. <laughs> and I put it in a lovely box. I did it already. And I wrapped it up in this beautiful gift paper. You know the stuff you get from the shop? <laughs> and a bow, the best I could do with a seven or eight-year-old, and a nice little gift card to mummy with love from your son, Peter. When I handed it to my mother, oh, she was almost crying. You know, a special gift. She never expected this. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's so sweet. Those of you who had children, you get a special gift from one of your, your kids. Ah, oh, isn't that cute? Six or seven-year-old kid. <laughs> and then, happy birthday, mummy. Oh, that's so nice of you. So cute. And she opened it up. It wasn't so best wrapping because I was only a kid. And she opened up a little box and she opened it up. <laughs> I still laugh when I remember this. The eel, you know, it's not, not a snake, you know, it's harmless, but it still, it rose up <laughs> in front of my mum and she screamed. But I was, I was wise enough. I didn't know the words for it, but these days they call it an exit strategy. <laughs> I had it all planned where I was going to run to and hide for a couple of hours until she cooled off. <laughs> My poor old mum. I apologise, but no, I really looked after and helped her later on in her life. But anyway, <laughs> stupid thing. But anyway, sometimes you remember those things. I forgave myself a long time ago. And my mother forgave as well. She was always very forgiving and kind. Guilt had no part of it. Because I was a stupid young boy learning. So all the mistakes which you make, all of you monks, which I've kind of trained. <laughs> Are they nice monks? Do you like having them here in Newby Buddhist Monastery? Yes. Yeah, so you see why? They're not perfect, but they're kind. They've been pretty good. Actually, you train people much better, you get much better outcomes with kindness, with gentleness. So anyway, so, okay, next question, we've got time. Thank you, Arjan. Um, next question. Uh, what is the best action to take when we are bombarded with future and past thinking? Uh, you're bombarded with it. You just allow it to come. Why do you do that for? Instead of allowing it to keep coming, you've got lots of past. Just do a little bit of psychology reading or whatever. You find out that whatever you thought happened in the past never did. We always bend the truth. Our memory is more faithful to what we think should have happened, what actually happened. And I'll just, a good example of this. There was a psychologist who was about to retire. He was cleaning out his papers. This was in Canada. And he found out he did a survey of, um, a survey of how kids were treated by their parents in the town he was in years and years ago. You know, did his parents like beat him? 
You know, if you did something wrong, or did they send them to the room? Did you like you know, your mother more than your father? Did you have a happy childhood? Or all these simple questions. And he had all the answers there. And so what he did, he contacted as many of these kids as he could find. Now they were adults, maybe 30 years afterwards, and asked them the same questions. And he found mm. out that the answer was almost totally different. What they said happened 30 years earlier. What they said happened afterwards were different. And it just was how unreliable memory is. So when you're bombarded with thoughts of the past, for goodness sake, just what you thought happened probably never did. And that's the same with, I've got a brother still alive, very close to. Sometimes we have these, I don't know, arguments, discussions. You know, they were talking the other day uh, that uh, when I last visited about three years ago, he said he always told his children that um, he sang with the choir in the Royal Albert Hall. I said, no, you didn't. That was me. He said, no, it was me. It was one of us. We asked our mum when she was still alive. She had one of you, but I don't, don't remember which one. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do we. <laughs> so have you ever had experiences like that? The past, we actually change it. And that's why we can't rely upon the past memories. So instead, we just let them go. We don't learn from the past. We learn from the present. And as for the future, if you're bombarded with thoughts or fears of the future, please write them down. Write them down now. All the things you're afraid of in the future. And one year from now, get out that piece of paper and find out how many things actually happened. And the answer would probably be almost 0% or 1% at most. I remember when I first came to Perth. That was a time, you know, it's almost uh, 30, almost 40 years ago now. There was uh, Margaret Thatcher in England. There was, uh, who was it, Reagan over in the United States. And the Soviet Union were very strong, and they were pointing um, armaments at each other. And we all thought there was going to be a nuclear war. And even just people showed me these documentaries of what would happen, even to a town like Perth, if there was a nuclear war. And it was just so scary. But I remember even Ajahn Chakra at the time, that. He made, I was only two months at the time, myself and him, made sure we had miso every morning. Miso, this Japanese soup, because it was supposed to be really good uh, to prevent you from the, the effects of radiation. <laughs> <laughs> we drank a lot of miso soup. <laughs> But there was no, there was no nuclear, <laughs> nuclear attack. That sometimes you can understand just how so much of what we're afraid of destroys our happiness. We can't enjoy today. We're worried about what might happen tomorrow. Of course, you know, you can be just too blase about looking after and caring for yourself and your family and your loved ones and your, your monks. But nevertheless, don't overdo it and be afraid.
There's all sorts of things you can be afraid of. And sometimes what you're afraid of, if you're really, really afraid of it, you actually make it happen. It's weird, but you create the future that way. You're really afraid that you're going to have an accident. Or like, this is for lay people. People are afraid that you're going to uh, break up in your relationship. Boys and girls get married and they're afraid, oh, what happens if she leaves me? And you get so fearful and controlling, it's a terrible relationship. And of course they do break up. What you're afraid of, you make happen. You're afraid you're going to lose your job. And if you do that, you're just so tense at work, you can't relax and perform well, and you do lose your job. You're afraid that you'll have to give a talk. <laughs> then you have to give one. <laughs> <laughs> so little by little, we understand just that the fear is not helpful for us. So that's one of the reasons why when force of the future coming, ah, forget about that. Think you've got no future. You've got no past. How free is that? It is here right now, as much as, as best you possibly can. So, are you afraid that I'm going to go over time? You're going to miss your lunch, monks? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you another question. All right. Thank you, Arjun. So, there's about seven questions. Uh, oh, yeah. Seven questions. I'm not making it. Anyway. <laughs> I'll just okay. go to the next one. Um, <laughs> is PT the same as Shakti? And where does PT come from? Where is what? Same as Shakti? PT. Where does it come from? No, the PT this is happiness, and this happiness which comes, the joy, the sukha which comes, this is from an energized mind. Simple experience many people have. You have a strong cup of coffee in the morning, then you, people can talk to you. In other words, you're energized and you're much more happy with people. But if you're really dull and depressed, you just go woken up in the morning. Oh, I don't know. No. Uh, can I go out today? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with I don't miss I don't know. It's just sometimes you're tired. When you're really tired, it's best not to ask any questions or any favors. But when, look, I've taught those my marks at this so many times. Before you ask a question, you need to do something, special privilege. Have a look first of all. You know, how is your boss today? <laughs> and if I'm in a really good mood, oh yes, uh, can I please have this or do that? And of course, you're in a good mood, you always say yes. Because you're happy. And that joy. And the best way to cultivate joy and happiness is actually through stillness. The reason I say that is because people do too much, they think too much, they worry too much. Because they worry too much, think too much, do too much, they're so exhausted. No wonder they're unhappy. They even get depressed. But if you learn how to rest, relax, take some time for yourself, especially do some meditation, your energy just comes right up. And you get very happy. That's where the happiness comes from, from stillness, which is energizes the mind. Okay, next question.
Thank you, Arjun. Next question is, how can we start performing our day-to-day -day work without att attachments or cravings? Oh, remember, you're going to die. <laughs> so what are you attached to things for? You're going to leave it all alone. If, the, if your family don't get it, the tax office will. You won't be able to take anything with you. So there's a story about this lawyer. He was on his deathbed, being a lawyer, always trying to find out the loopholes. So he said, I just figured it all out. So they say, you can't take it with you, but I found a way you can. Go to the bank. You know those two suitcases, big ones we use when we go on holidays. Take it to the bank. Here's the check. Fill it full of cash. Not Aussie dollars, but I think it's euros is the highest denomination in the world, isn't it? Fill it full of euros. I think $1,000 euro notes or something. In the two suitcases. Pour them in my room. You know, this is where I am. This is where I'm going to die. In the room above me. And then when I die, as I go up to heaven, I will grab the suitcases <laughs> and take them with me. And the wife said, well, waste, waste the time arguing with the lawyer. So she went to the bank, got the money, put it in the room above him. And of course, he died in a day or two's time. And when he died, <laughs> no, she did all the ceremonies, first of all. And then only after four or five days after the, the funeral, she went upstairs and checked. The bags were still there with the money in it. Said, stupid husband. He should have put them in the room below him. I knew which way he was going. <laughs> you can't take it with you. Okay, next question. Thank you, Arjun. Um, for a male layperson who is looking for an amazing wife who is also a practitioner, do you have any guidance? I know yeah. we need to lower right. our expectations. Yeah, I'm up. Next question. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> working in the kitchen is irritating as it becomes dirty many times. How to prevent my mind from burning while dealing with that and cool my mind? Thank you. Okay. I make salads. Salads are very cool. You don't get hot. And um, no, I should be serious. But when you're working in a kitchen, instead of actually looking at it with negativity, look at what you're actually doing. It's not just making uh, money for your family and for your uh, for your existence. It's also helping people. We all need to eat. You know, sometimes you make food for the monks. People make food for me. And you know people put special care into making the baked beans for me this morning or the toast or whatever else you make. <laughs> and you can taste it. When people really care and put their extra energy, extra care into making food for other people, what a great gift that is. So you're working in the kitchen, you get money because you have to pay your bills, but you're also you're giving this beautiful food to all the people who come in here. And this is something they all require and need, and you're giving it for them. So don't look upon it as a chore, as a job. It's hard work, but life is hard work. But instead of uh, just getting negativity, you can get negativity to anything. 
instead of getting negative towards it, just imagine just the care and how people can enjoy your food even more. You know, if you can, so you know, keep all the workplaces clean and keep your mind clean and give it with, make it with love. I'm not just saying this, but really do that. And it becomes a great joy to you, gift to you. You know, sometimes uh, when a monk does get sick, our job is to look after them. People get so much joy and happiness looking after you if you're sick. That's one of my faults and failings. One of my faults and failings, I don't get sick enough. <laughs> I apologize for that. <laughs> don't give you a chance to look after me. <laughs> but it's, it's great. You get so much happiness giving something to somebody. You know they like it, and you know that it's it's okay for them, and you just you don't have it yourself, you give it to somebody else. Just even the other day at Bodhinyana Monastery, it's been really hot there the last week. This is just so beautiful. This is lovely. Thank you for giving me the beautiful uh, Victorian weather. Mm. People always complain about the weather. You should go to Bodhinyana Monastery, it's a really hot spell. But anyway, somebody gave some ice cream. And I was sitting next to Ajahn Bamali. He didn't have any, he didn't notice it. So I had this ice cream. And I looked at him and he said, oh, that looks nice, ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it much better when I was watching him eating it than if I ate it myself. You've experienced that before? I like ice cream, especially when it's really hot. But he was, had been working, he needed it more than I did. And I got so much more happiness and joy giving things to others. So you understand this, you're working in the kitchen, just how much joy and happiness are you giving to others? Immense amount. So well done. You just have a big smile on your face when you're cooking. I still remember that time, Ajahn Santuti. Ajahn Santuti, he's, he's now got his own little monastery over in part of Perth. But I remember when he was an Anagarika, just in training, and it was, we're doing a retreat, and the uh, the retreat manager, the retreat cook, got sick and couldn't do the retreat. So I had to find at the last moment somebody to do the cooking. And I, I knew that uh, Santuti Tuong, his name was in the old days. Said, Can you do the cooking? The big smile said, Yeah, I'll do that. And did you go on that retreat, John? I oh, didn't. Okay, but that was just one of the amazing retreats. Because he had a couple of waxes, no Vietnamese. He was cooking and frying, and, and this. <laughs> no, people actually—they apologised me. Just went into the kitchen just to look. It was entertaining. He was cooking their lunch <laughs> with a big smile on his face all the time. There's a frying in the wax. He made delicious food. But the point was, he was so happy when he was doing it, and it's that's just etched. Seeing him cooking etched in people's memory much more than my talks. I always remember that too. <laughs> that just giving, expecting nothing back in return, and just enjoying himself, making this retreat possible for so many people. So that's what giving is. It gives you so much happiness if you do it properly. It's ten forty. Is that okay? Another question? Sorry. About time. Oh, it's about time. So for all those people whose questions weren't answered. I do apologize for that, but I won't feel guilty about it. Thank you for asking the questions. If I didn't answer them, 
properly, then remember you have another chance on Tuesday at Morven Town Hall. Online, online, online there'll be a Q&A session. Oh, Tuesday, when, when is that? That's uh, 7.30, hmm. 7.30. Yeah. Yeah. So Tuesday. 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 In two days' time. And if you don't manage to get your questions answered, then Morven Town Hall. Online. Yes, I know, but Morven Town Hall. Wednesday. That's Wednesday. That's Wednesday week. Second of March. Yeah, and that's when it's live. <laughs> and live is much more important. You see, all these people, sometimes they're sitting next to each other and they're texting each other. They don't know how to talk with one another. But seeing it live is much more powerful. So that's. Uh, please log in and not log in, register on the Buddhist Society of Victoria website and Morven Town Hall. Live, <laughs> powerful, <laughs> not to be missed. <laughs> okay, so I decided to. I'm just trying to give it.